following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're going to take a break today from our series through 2 Peter and and figure that we're between chapters and so it's a good time for us to uh, revisit our theme for the year, Devoted to God. And uh, so we're going to do that today. So hopefully you remember back on January 3rd, first Sunday of the year, I introduced the theme by looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20. through 20. And uh, we talked about the fact that Christ purchased us with His blood on the cross. And, and because we belong to Him, He has also indwelt us with His Spirit. So God has set us apart from the world to Himself. We belong to God, and so we must glorify Him in every aspect of life. So so God has called us to be holy as He is holy. We are devoted to God. But, But as wonderful as that privilege is, as wonderful as our calling is, I think we all know that our flesh resists the idea that holiness is a privilege. Right? I mean, it resists it. I mean, you're in 1 Peter 2. Look at what Peter says in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. If you are a Christian, there is a war taking place inside you whenever you pursue holiness. Your flesh is warring against godliness and the desires for the things of the Lord. And that doesn't always look the same for all of us, right? I mean, for some people, the war against the flesh is particularly acute in the realm of status, for example. So maybe you long to be accepted by others, to be esteemed by other people. And what's ironic is that could take a couple of different shapes. It might be that you seek status and acceptance by trying to look as much like the world as possible. It may be, on the other hand, that you want to impress Christians, and so you put on a show of religious hypocrisy to be accepted by them. But regardless, you have this longing for respect and acceptance. Maybe you just want to feel good. And so where you really struggle against the flesh is is that that you want to do whatever is going to make you feel good in the moment. Whether that be uh, that you're lazy, that you're gluttonous, you pursue sex, Substance abuse, raunchy entertainment, or a variety of other things. Or, or maybe for you, your struggle is, is against worldly ambitions. And so you really uh, struggle with being obsessed with money, or politics, or some hobby, or, or a variety of other things. So, so it could be a variety of things, but regardless of the struggle, I think every one of us knows, and we've all experienced the fact that the world The flesh and the devil are working very hard to discourage you from desiring holiness and pursuing it. So so therefore, I want to challenge us today to see holiness as a privilege. To see holiness as a privilege. And, and, And that's so important because you will never thrive spiritually if you are not motivated to do so. I mean, how how well do we do things that we don't want to do? Have you ever helped a kid do his homework that he doesn't really want to do? 
How well does he do it? It takes five times as long as it should because he doesn't want to do it. But when we enjoy something, we go after it. And if we see the honor that God has bestowed on us, that He has called us to Himself, and you are motivated to pursue after Him, you're going to enjoy the, holy, the pursuit of holiness far more than you will otherwise, and you will go much further than you would otherwise also. So, so to make this point, I want to look at 1 Peter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. So let's go ahead and read this passage. God's Word says, "...coming to Him as to a living stone..." Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to those, to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the Word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, I do need to just say at the outset that that we are not going to cover every nook and cranny of this passage today. There's a lot going on, and uh, when I preached through 1 Peter uh, back in 2015-2016, we, we spent a couple weeks working through this passage. So no, instead today, I just want to focus in on, on this simple fact of the privilege of holiness. And, and to really appreciate what Peter's saying in this passage, we, we need to read it in context, and, and we need to understand that, that Peter is writing to a group of believers who are struggling under the weight of severe persecution. So, so these people... They're not worried about indulging every fleshly passion that's out there. They're just worried about not sticking out and attracting the hatred and the hostility of the world. So so, so therefore, before we get to our privileged status, Peter first grounds his call in the fact that God accepted Christ. God accepted Christ. Now, Now that's the most captain obvious statement of all time, right? Of course God the Father accepts Jesus. We all know that. Well, well, the reason I bring it up, and the reason Peter brings it up, is because like us, Jesus was rejected by the world. He was rejected. And therefore, as Peter's readers were dealing with hostility, it was encouraging to remember that, that Jesus could relate because He endured hatred and hostility. And He can sympathize. And it's not just that He can sympathize with how we feel lonely in this world. He also won the victory. And so there is hope in the fact that God accepted Christ. So so first of all, notice in this passage that the world rejected Christ. The world rejected Christ. And and, and so verses 4 and 5, we're going to understand these verses. We have to recognize that, that, that Peter here is drawing an analogy 
uh, based on construction practices in the ancient world. And, and specifically, uh, when the ancients would build large structures, they, they of course couldn't call in a concrete truck. They couldn't call in uh, steel girders and cranes and so forth. No, they had to, to build these large structures out of stones. And so they would go out to a quarry and, and they would cut out massive stones. And, um, and they would cut them to very specific dimensions to fit very specifically into certain spots. I, I was writing or watching a thing on TV a few months ago and they were talking about the pyramids. And, and they're out this pyramid and they, and they were showing that you couldn't even slide a penny between two of these stones, these massive stones, because they were cut out so perfectly to fit together. So they cut out these large stones. And, and by the way, some of them could be massive. Archaeologists have uncovered one ancient cornerstone that measured 69 feet long by 12 by 13. That is a big stone. And then, what's really challenging is they had to transport these stones to the construction site. And once the stones reached the construction site, the engineers would examine them to make sure that they were the appropriate dimensions and that they were capable of bearing the weight uh, that, that they were going to have to bear. And what's significant to our text is if the stone did not meet their standards, it would be rejected. It would be set aside. And similarly, Peter states that when the Jews examined Jesus, He didn't fit their standards of what the Messiah was going to be. Now, Jesus didn't come uh, to, to earth as a glorious king full of pomp and circumstance and beauty. No, instead, he was a humble carpenter from the town of Nazareth. And Jesus didn't come on a war horse determined to defeat the Romans. No, instead, before his crucifixion, he came into town on a donkey to bring peace and salvation. And because of that, Peter tells us here that, that Jesus was rejected by men. And ultimately, He was crucified. And Peter's readers could identify with this hostility that Jesus had endured. They were struggling themselves, and I'm sure that they were tired of being outcasts from society and the struggles, the cost of serving God. And what a blessing it would have been to them to know that Christ had been there as well. Now, now, thankfully, we don't face the same level of hostility that Peter's readers endured. But verse 11 tells us that Christians will always be sojourners and pilgrims in this world. We are never going to fully fit in. And, and it's encouraging to know that Christ has been there. Christ knows what it's like to be rejected. And, and, and He sympathizes with all that we endure. But, but thankfully, that's not the end of the story. It's not just that Jesus can sympathize. No, Peter reminds us of the fact that while the world rejected Christ, God accepted Him. So, so verse 4 says that, that Jesus is chosen by God and precious. And, and as well, uh, verse 4 calls Him a living stone. Now remember when it says they're living stone, that, that Peter is drawing this, this building analogy, and, and specifically, he is thinking here of the construction of a temple. And of course, Israel's temple was, was very central to life uh, before Christ and, and during the life of Christ. And, and you think of Peter, 
You know, Peter's life had, had one time been centered around that temple. Probably as a boy, and growing up into adulthood, he had traveled many times down to the temple in Jerusalem from Galilee to offer sacrifices and to worship the Lord. And I imagine that some of Peter's best memories of his life were sitting there in, in the temple courtyards listening to Jesus teach. So, so the temple was very important to the Jews. But Peter says that the Father is building an even greater temple through Christ. Now, of course, this temple is very different from the stone structure that, had, that was standing in, in Jerusalem. No, God is building here. Well, he says Christ is a living stone. And, and verse 5 says that we are also living stones. So, so God is building a human temple to Himself that is far more glorious in the sight of God than, than any building that, that man has ever made. And we're going to come back later at, at the end of the sermon today uh, to the significance of this new temple and our role in the temple. But, but for now, I just want to park on the fact that looks can be deceiving. Imagine if you were there the day that Jesus was being marched to Calvary. You see Jesus walking up the hill and He's battered, he's, he's torn, He's carrying the cross, and He's on His way to die. And if you're staying there, you didn't have any context at all, you would say, that guy lost. He's on the losing side. He's on His way to death. But of course, looks can be deceiving. And it looked that day like, like Satan had won and God had lost. But, but this passage tells us that that was not so. And in fact, uh, we're not going to take the time to look at it today, but verses 6 through 9 tell us, or 6 through 8 tell us, that, that, that a number of Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled that day. So, so yes, it looked like God was losing, but in fact, he was doing exactly what he had said and providing salvation. So, so instead of signaling defeat, the cross is actually a glorious fulfillment of God's purpose and an advancement in God's purpose. So as a result, verse 6 promises that he who believes on Christ will by no means be put to shame. Christ will not fail. He provides a sure foundation for the church and for all of our lives, and someday He's going to reward us in glory. And because of that, those who believe on Christ, when we see Him, we will not regret any sacrifice. We will not regret following Him. As He says, we will not be disappointed. And folks, that is so important to remember as we struggle for holiness in this broken world. Because again, we are always going to be in the minority. And it's hard. It's hard to watch people around us have a good time and indulge every desire of the flesh seemingly without any consequence at all. And we begin to wonder, is Christ really worth it? Is He worth it? And, 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 but we need to remember that looks can be deceiving. You know, have you ever seen, you know, you, sometimes you might see a car that looks impressive and beautiful, but then you find out the engine's blown or the transmission's terrible. You know, have you ever been at a party and there's some beautiful, stunning cake and you're like, wow, that looks great, and then you bite into it and it's dry and it tastes terrible? 
You know, sometimes you watch a race in the Olympics or something, and, and, and this one guy, you know, jumps out to a huge lead, and, and man, he's trucking past everyone in the first mile, and then he begins to fade, and ultimately he loses the race altogether. And folks, looks can be deceiving. So, so yes, it looked bad when Christ was on the cross, but that day God won a marvelous victory. And similarly, the pursuit of holiness at times is going to look like a lost cause. It's going to look like a waste of time. You're going to wonder, why in the world am I making these sacrifices when these guys over here are having such a grand time? But when you stand before Christ in victory someday, you will give thanks for the privilege of serving Him. And you will not regret any sacrifice. So folks, it is a privilege to be devoted to God and to spend our lives pursuing His glory. So, so, so the first major truth in this passage is, is that God accepted Christ. And then the second major truth I want us to see is that God accepts us. God accepts us. And, and to make this point, I want to jump down to verses 9 and 10. And notice the language Peter uses here regarding how God has set us apart to Himself. It says in verse 9, but you excuse me, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So, so I just want to walk through the various descriptions in this verse, in these two verses. So first of all, Peter says that we are a chosen generation. And first, that phrase reminds us that, that all that we have received is, is, is based on the unique love of God. We are chosen by Him. We didn't come to Him. Instead, He came to us. And I hope that, that we never lose sight of just how amazing it is that God set His love on me. That He loved me when I did not love Him. And, and because of that, we are part of this generation. And the idea behind generation is that of a people with a common heritage that binds them together. And I think we all understand that. We've all had experiences where we run into someone where we've got some, something significant in common. And we have an immediate connection. You know? so, so for example, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest. So I meet someone else that grew up on a farm in the Midwest I've got an immediate connection. I want to know about their tractors and about their farm equipment and their livestock and all those other things. And there's a connection there. And you've probably had a similar experience. You run into someone somewhere and there's that deep bond that because of shared interest. And similarly, Christians share a common heritage through the new birth. We were all once lost in the darkest night we had no hope. We were without God in the world. But then God opened our eyes to the glory of Christ. He saved us and transformed us. And that common experience creates a special bond among us. And we've all, hopefully we've all seen that too. You know, that, that we live in this hostile world. Hopefully when we come together as a church, there's rest because of our shared love for Jesus and our shared love for each other. 
And we are so blessed to be part of God's chosen generation. And then the second description he gives is that we are a royal priesthood. And that language uh, draws heavily on the Old Testament worship. And, uh, and specifically, Israel's priests were set apart to God. So, so the priests belonged to God in a, in a unique way compared to the rest of the nation. And the priests had the unique opportunity of having direct access to God. I mean, only the priests could enter the Holy of Holies and stand and, 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 and come before God and, at the Ark of the Covenant. And they came there to, to, to mediate for the people and, and to bring His blessings to them. And, and, and folks, the Bible teaches that we also have direct access to God. And there is no greater privilege that we can have than to be near to Him. So yes, it's true that if you live for God and you pursue holiness, it is going to set you apart from the world around you. But what's better? To be near to a lost and dying world or to be near to God? And the fact that we can draw near to God through the Gospel in worship, prayer, through the ministry of the indwelling Spirit, these are marvelous gifts of God. It's a blessing to be a royal, part of this royal priesthood. And then the third description he gives is that we are a holy nation. And again, that phrase is rich in Old Testament significance, and, and it comes specifically uh, from Exodus chapter 19. And so uh, Israel had left Egypt roughly three months prior, and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God speaks to Israel and He tells them that you are a holy nation. So He's saying that He had set them apart from every other nation in the world to be His own people. Now, of course, they weren't a holy nation in the sense that they were more righteous than the other nations. We read a passage last week in Deuteronomy 7 where where God says, I didn't choose you because you were greater in number or more righteous than others. You are the least of all peoples. So, so the point is not that Israel was holier than, than everyone around them. No, the sense is, is that they uniquely belonged to God. And, 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 and the same is true for us. That God has set us apart as His special people. And we have a relationship with Him that no one else on earth enjoys. And again, that doesn't mean that we're better than other people. Because everything we have is all grace. It is all grace. But we are a holy nation. I think uh, uh, maybe a helpful analogy there is, is that in the law. You know, so many of the laws that God established for Israel really had very little, if anything, to do with making them righteous. No, instead, God had all those food laws. All those rules about how they were to dress and how they were to worship and how they were to function in day-to-day life. And they were all they were all pictures. They were all reminders that you are not like every other nation in this world. And you are not to blend in with every other nation in this world. You are my special people. Now the point then is not that we just go around and we're weird for the sake of being weird and we make ourselves obnoxious just to be obnoxious. But God wants us to be in the world for the sake of the Gospel. But, but we have to remember that, 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 that at the same time, the very core of who I am is different because of the regenerating work of the Spirit. 
I mean, I am not like the world any longer. And, and the church is not just another community organization. We are part of a holy nation. And yes, it's true that that sometimes is going to make life more difficult. It's going to require sacrifices and sometimes it's going to put a target on your back because Satan and the world and the flesh do not like holiness. But, but whose acceptance is going to stand the test of time? The acceptance of the world or the acceptance of, acceptance of Christ? And there's no comparison. So, so don't ever forget that it is a privilege to be set apart to God. And then the fourth description in verse 9 is, is we are described as His own special people. And that phrase is also a rich in Old Testament significance and again just simply points to our unique relationship with each other and with God. And how awesome is it that we can say we are a part of God's special people. That infinite God looks at me with that kind of grace. It is a marvelous privilege to be devoted to God. And I'm going to come back later to the purpose clause uh, there in the middle of verse 9. Uh, but for now, jump down and notice that, that he ends the passage with three contrasts between our state before we came to Christ and afterwards. So he ends verse 9 by saying that, that God did all this that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you, notice, out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now, now the first, first part of that dark, uh, is darkness. And, and the Scriptures frequently describe those without Christ, as living in darkness. And if you've ever found yourself in utter darkness, you know that it can be rather unnerving. So I remember when I was a, a teenager, uh, my family visited Hannibal, Missouri, which is the hometown of Mark Twain. And, and outside of town, they have this massive cave system, which uh, inspired uh, the part of the story of Tom Sawyer where they go down the cave and they get lost. And so we went down in this cave, and... Um, and this cave was something else. I mean, there were tunnels and nooks and crannies all over the place. And, and you could see how someone could get down in that cave and get turned around and never find their way out. So, so we go down there. We get a little ways into the cave. And, and the guide warned us. And then she shut off all the lights. And, and we experienced complete darkness. And so you know, she told us, you know, put your thumb on your nose and move your fingers. And you couldn't see anything. I mean, it was like, I mean you, there was no visibility at all. And, um, and, and, and so, it, it was an unnerving place to be. It was a scary place to be. And, and think, folks, about the fact that the Scriptures describe the life of the unbeliever as being in that kind of utter darkness. They cannot see God as He really is. And they don't appreciate how, how sin is deceiving them. And the Bible teaches that they will never find their way out on their own. They are in utter darkness. And Peter reminds us that we were once in that complete darkness. But then God called us out of darkness, He says, into His marvelous light. And God opened our eyes so that we could see Him in all of His beauty. He allowed us to understand the significance of Christ's death and resurrection and to look at all of life with the perspective of God's eternal promises. And what a blessing it is that we no longer walk in darkness, we walk in light. 
through the work of God's Spirit. And then verse 10 uh, adds a second contrast. It says, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. And that statement there uh, draws uh, again on Old Testament language and specifically uh, from a story in Hosea chapter 2. So, so the context is, is that Israel was far away from God. Uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they had rejected Him and they were walking in idolatry and ungodliness. And so God uh, wanted Hosea to, to illustrate His judgment on Israel. And so his wife was expecting and and God commanded him to name his second son Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Now, now how would you like to have that as your name? You know, what's your name? My name is not my people. Like, wow, your parents must really hate you. And so, so Hosea was to name his son not my people. And, uh, and, and Hosea was to do this as a symbol of the fact that God was rejecting Israel. That he had pushed them far away from him and that He was abandoning them to judgment. But, but of course, God is, is rich in mercy. So, so even as He said, you are not My people and you are going to be judged, God also said in Hosea 2, verse 23, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not My people, you are My people. And they shall say, you are My God. And Peter says to his Gentile readers that, that we also had one time been far away from God. He was not our God and we were not His people. But God mercifully brought us to Himself. And He made us His. And we are the people of God. We belong to Him. And then the third contrast he gives at the end of verse 10 is who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So first of all, in this statement, Peter reminds us that before we knew Christ, we lived in a state without mercy. And that's a very bad place for sinners to be. If I have to stand before God in myself and in my own righteousness, I am doomed. And so the unbeliever is in a state without mercy, and the idea is that God's wrath hangs over their heads like a dark cloud. But when I believe the Gospel, God forgave me of all of my sin. I was credited with the righteousness of Christ. And the Scriptures teach I went from being under a state of wrath to being under a state of fatherly mercy. And so now, God, God does not relate to me fundamentally based on His justice and His wrath. No, instead, He looks at me with eyes of kindness and mercy. And if there's anyone here today who has never received Christ as your Savior, I hope that you will see today that you are living right now in the first, in, in the first part of each of those contrasts. That, that, that you might think you're smart and you have everything figured out, but you are actually in darkness. You are not near to God. You are not His people. And as well, you do not know mercy. And that is a bad place to be. It is a lost place to be. But Christ bore the judgment for sin on the cross so that you could move from the first part of those contrasts to the second. And you can know the mercy of God. And you can be forgiven of all of your sins. You can walk in the light. 
And God can claim you as His child. And so if there's anyone here that has not received Christ as your Savior, I hope that you will see today that the, the bleak, terrible place you are and that you will come to Christ and be saved. And if you are saved, verses 9 and 10 first of all serve as a weighty reminder of the fact that we are different. We're different. And belonging to God necessarily means that, that you no longer fit in this evil world system. And, and folks, that it's so important that we just come to grips with that. Because so often we, we live our lives as Christians and we are really trying to fit in both worlds. And we just need to recognize that it's miserable to try and straddle the fence. It's miserable to try and hold on to Jesus and hold on to as much of the world as possible. And, but, but what did Jesus say? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You've got to choose. Jesus or the world. And, and so, make, and, and recognize that, that you will never have joy, you will never have rest in your Christian experience until you just embrace the fact that, that you are different, you're never going to fit in. But, but then with that, recognize that you have gained far more than you have lost. Because the world's acceptance can never match the acceptance of God. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to be devoted to God, to belong to Him. And, and, so, and so praise the Lord for that. And then with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to see that God has not done all this merely for our benefit. No, He has done it all to glorify Himself through us. So God glorifies Himself in us. So, so jump back up to verse 5. And notice what verse 5 says. It says, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, now the grammar of that verse, and, and the grammar of ver both verses 4 and 5, clearly sets off the verb, are being built up, as the center of these two verses. So, so everything that's going on, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that He rose again, that, that, he chose a, that God chose Jesus as the perfect cornerstone, the fact that He is now drawing sinners to Himself, all of it is centered in the fact that God is building up this spiritual house or, or this new temple. And it's interesting that, that here in verse 5 we're described as living stones. It's the same word that He used in verse 4 of Jesus. And, and maybe you're, hopefully you remember that earlier we said that, that this word for stone describes a, a cut stone. One that has been shaped for a very specific purpose. So, so the fact that I am a living stone means that God chose me and that He is carefully shaping me to fit a very specific role, a very specific purpose in this temple that He is building. And, and as well, so, so then as I grow as an individual, and as God saves other people, He is growing this temple of praise that He describes here into a greater, more beautiful structure. But of course, we have to remember that the purpose of this temple is not ultimately to bring glory to the temple, is it? That, that God is not constructing His church to bring glory to the church. 
No, God is building this house. And verse 5 says He is as well making us priests to Himself. He says here to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's all for His glory. He, he says later in verse 9 that God has shown us this marvelous grace. Why? That you might proclaim the excellence, the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, so God has done all of this. He has saved me. He has called me to Himself. And certainly, I benefit from all of it. But the ultimate purpose of all of it is that God would be glorified. So the question then is, how do I offer a sacrifice of praise? What's that look like? Well, well the Scriptures give us a, a variety of answers to that question. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells me that, that I am to present my body a living sacrifice. So one of the ways I offer a sacrifice of praise is to use my body and to live my life in a way that, that reflects the, the work of God in my heart. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 commands us to offer the sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks. So when I sing to the Lord, or, or when I speak of, of His wonders and His grace and kindness to me, I'm actually offering up a sacrifice of praise. I am glorifying Him with my lips. And then the next verse adds that we worship God by doing good deeds. So when I am kind to someone, when I express the love of Christ to a brother or sister or to an unbeliever, I'm again glorifying the Lord by reflecting to them the, the, the grace and the kindness of my Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 describes Paul's ministry to the church as a sacrifice to God. So, so when I share the Gospel, when I disciple a brother or sister in Christ, when I participate in the life of the church, I'm again showing the worth and glory of God. So I have many opportunities to express love and devotion to the Lord in response to everything that He has done for me. And, and He has done a lot, hasn't He? I mean, Christ made the ultimate sacrifice by coming to earth. He, was, he subjected Himself to the hatred of men. He died on the cross in my place. And He won my salvation. And how incredible is it to think that God did all of that to call a broken sinner like me to Himself. And He calls us out of the world into this deep, rich, personal fellowship with Himself. It's truly amazing. So, so yes, God demands a lot. And as we continue to think about our theme for the year devoted to God, we're going to be challenged, hopefully by the grace of God, to, to, to be different. And we're going to think about some of, the, some of the, the strong demands that God gives. He says earlier in, in 1 Peter 1 that I am to be holy as He is holy. I mean, that is a stunning command when you think about the significance of what He's saying. So God absolutely demands a lot. And, and of course, saying no to the flesh. Living for eternity. Walking as a lonely pilgrim through this fallen world. None of it is easy. None of it's easy. 
But what we receive in exchange is worth infinitely more than we have lost. Infinitely more. And it is a wonderful privilege to be God's own special people. And, and, and to be devoted to Him. So I want to challenge us all today to embrace your calling. Embrace your calling. Be thankful that God has devoted you to Himself. And then fulfill the purpose for which you have been called. This week, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So show the world the beauty of your Savior by living worthy of everything that He has done for you. Father, we thank You today for the marvelous grace of the Gospel. And Lord, we thank You today that Christ has worked to draw us to Himself, to save us, and to change us. And Lord, I, I pray for any who are here that do not yet know the grace of the Gospel. Oh Lord, I pray that today You would open their eyes to the beauty of Christ and draw them to Yourself and save them. And Lord, for those of us who know You as Savior, Father, I pray that this week, when the world tugs in our hearts, when sinners demand our attention, that Lord, we would keep our eyes clearly fixed on the prize that You have before us, the privilege that is ours. And Father, I pray that we would live changed lives Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would give us grace to, to, do, uh, to, to have the vision of this passage. I pray that Your Spirit would help us to rest in the truth of Scripture and believe the truth of Scripture and to go forward. And so Lord, use us this week to glorify Your name. To point unbelievers to the hope of the Gospel. To, to walk in holiness. Use us to make a difference in the lives of each other to build each other more and more into the image of Christ. And Father, we look forward to how you're going to work and, and we give you praise for what you will accomplish. In Christ's name, amen.